0: Take our Bibles to Matthew chapter four, please. Now, Matthew three and four introduces Jesus to the world with the beginning of his public ministry. Before introducing the king, Matthew introduces us to the king's herald, John the Baptizer. John was the son of Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth, and you recall that Elizabeth was the cousin of Mary, Jesus' mother, making John and Jesus cousins. John's ministry preceded Jesus' ministry by about six months. Now John forsook the religious trappings of Jerusalem, choosing to minister as a prophet in the wilderness. Instead of the city, he went to the wilderness near the Jordan River as the place of his ministry. From the wilderness he proclaimed that great message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there He baptized those who confessed their sins. In the fall, during the season of Rosh Hashanah of that year, Jesus came to be baptized by his cousin John. His baptism was not one of repentance. Instead, it served as his commissioning to the priesthood and his identification as the Messiah. Being baptized, Jesus obeyed the law regarding the ceremonial cleansing of individuals to the priesthood. At the same time, the Holy Spirit descended out of heaven, anointing Jesus for priestly service, and the Father spoke from heaven, announcing Him as the beloved and pleasing Son. So being confirmed as a priest, Jesus was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. But His temptation began after 40 days and nights of fasting. When Jesus was at His weakest, Satan tempted Him. Paul writes in Hebrews 4.15, Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Satan tempted Jesus with the lust of the flesh. He tempted him with the pride of life. And he tempted him with the lust of the eyes. Satan tempted Jesus to use his power to selfishly turn stones into bread to gratify his hunger. Jesus resisted Satan, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 since Jesus would not use his power the tempter again tempted him to jump off the roof of the temple and use God's power the father's power to protect him again Jesus resisted the devil quoting Deuteronomy 6:16 6, finally Satan tempted Jesus with ownership of all the world's kingdoms if he would worship him and as with the first two temptations Jesus resists quoting Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13 Despite the three temptations, Jesus did not sin. He possesses no sin nature, and therefore we declare that Jesus is not able to sin. He is not able to sin. He's impeccable. Now, Jesus' temptation was meant to demonstrate that he is a sinless and sympathetic priest. As a sinless high priest, Jesus did not need a sin offering for himself. Instead, he was sufficient to offer himself as the sin offering for our sins, the sins of all humanity. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be the sin offering on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As a sympathetic high priest, Jesus understands human weakness because of his temptation. Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, Jesus himself was tempted. In that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Additionally, in Hebrews 4.15, Paul adds, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he was tempted at his weakest, Jesus is sympathetic to all who are tempted in their weaknesses. He does more than simply sympathize, though. Instead, He comes to our aid. He comes to the aid of all who are tempted. He provides a way of escape. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 13, "...no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man." And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation... We'll provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. What a precious promise that we have, because Jesus is our sinless, sympathetic high priest. Now, as Matthew continues with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he presents the preaching ministry of Jesus in Matthew chapter four, verses twelve to seventeen. We'll see three facts about his preaching ministry. Matthew notes the site where Jesus preached in verses twelve and thirteen. He presents the society to whom Jesus preached in chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. And finally, he reveals the sermon Jesus preached in verse 17. Now, I want to note here, it's important for you and I to understand, that approximately one year transpires between verse 11 and verse 12. We've talked about this before in the biblical text, this thing called compression of time. And that's exactly what we have here. Uh, We obviously see a 30-year compression of time uh, between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Now, between verse 11 of chapter 4 and verse 12 of chapter 4, there's another compression of time. There's a missing year of ministry. Now, because we have three other gospel witnesses, we know what happened during that year. And so the gospel of John... Chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 3 and verse 36 provides to us the missing year. So, to summarize, I'll give you that year in summary. First, in verse 35 of John 1, we know Jesus spent three days with John there following the baptism. On the third day, two of John's disciples, by the name of Andrew and John, left John... And began following Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 37 to 40. Then we have the 40 days and night of fasting. And the temptation. Following which in John chapter 2 verse 1 through 11. Jesus goes to the wedding feast at Cana. And performs his first public miracle. He then returns to Jerusalem. Where he cleansed the temple. Casting out the money changers i.e. the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees were the money changers. Following the temple cleansing, Jesus met with the Pharisee named Nicodemus in secret. John chapter 3 and verse 20, or chapter 3 verses 1 to 21. Now, during this year of ministry, Jesus ministered in Judea. John ministers in Perea, okay? Jesus is in Judea, John's uh, northeast in Perea. But their ministries overlap. However, John's ministry begins to wane, while Jesus' ministry begins to grow. And John himself testifies in John chapter 3 and verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. So let's look through Matthew chapter 4 at the preaching ministry of Jesus. And we're going to begin in verses 12 to 13, which presents the site where Jesus preached. The site where Jesus preached. Verse 12, now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, He withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Notice again that first statement. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into captivity or custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Notice the word heard. The word heard. Akuo. The word acoustic. It means that he became aware of something. Now, it's an interesting verb because it implies that Jesus learned of John's arrest via normal channels. Well, wait a minute. How is it that Jesus did not know that John was arrested? I mean, is not Jesus God in the flesh? Indeed he is. However, we must remember that Jesus chose to set aside certain outworkings, if you will, Of his deity. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Although Jesus existed in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, that word emptied, from which we get the the Greek word is kanao or kenosis, means that he divested himself of something. Now we have to then ask, what did Jesus divest himself of? Did he divest himself of his deity? Well, Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So we have an affirmation that Jesus did not divest himself of his deity. His self-emptying was a divesting of certain divine privileges. Such as omniscience, or all-knowingness, and omnipotence, or all-powerfulness. You see, Jesus temporarily set aside specific divine abilities to accomplish his messianic ministry of redemption. And so when Matthew reports that Jesus learned of John's arrest through normal channels, what he's doing is emphasizing Jesus' humanity. The next question, why was John arrested? Why was John arrested? Well, we go to Matthew 14, verse 3 and 4, and we get the answer. It says, when Herod had John arrested, he bound him, put him into prison. Why? Because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, John the baptizer confronted Herod Antipas this is there's five different Herods this is Herod Antipas okay not to be confused with Herod the Great back in chapter one and two of Matthew. Herod Antipas was confronted by John the Baptizer not only because he was engaging in an extramarital affair but because he was engaging in an incestuous relationship with his brother's wife ie his sister-in-law and as such Herod imprisoned him, in Macrius, on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. Now, John's imprisonment serves as an example to you and I. You see, Christians, you and I must uphold a biblical ethic of morality. And that morality is rooted in God's law. It's not lawful, Herod, for you to have Herodias. You see, as outlined in his word, God determines what is right, what is wrong and what he determines is right or wrong is the standard of morality that we are to follow, we are to uphold sadly too often when confronted with issues of morality we allow our feelings and our attachments to cloud our judgment and when feelings and attachments cloud our judgment we begin determining what is morally right or wrong based on the consequence or the outcome. God declared what's right and wrong. He declared what's good and evil. And regardless of how we might feel or our, what attachments we might have or what the consequence or outcome must, might be, we must, we don't have a choice, ladies and gentlemen, not before a holy God, we must conform to and uphold those standards regardless of the consequence. In essence, God expects us to be non-consequentialist when it comes to right and wrong. There is no gray area where God has declared in clear black and white, thus saith the Lord, do this, don't do that. This is right, that is wrong. John, the baptizer, was a non-consequentialist. In his preaching ministry, John called out sin and he confronted sinners knowing he could be imprisoned. The consequence did not deter him. And like John, Jesus also called out sin and confronted sinners. Now that brings an interesting question. If John and Jesus are both non consequentialist why does it appear that Jesus flees to Galilee because of John's imprisonment? Is Jesus fearful of Herod Antipas? Well, that's why we need to look at the other gospel accounts. Because when we take in the other three authors, we begin to fill in the background. And the gospel of John provides us background why the site of Jesus' ministry changed from Judea and Jerusalem to Capernaum of Galilee. John chapter 4 and verse 1 to 3 says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again into Galilee. Now, right there we have confirmation that Jesus was not fleeing Herod Antipas. He he didn't fear him. He wasn't scared of him. And furthermore, if he was afraid of Herod Antipas, Galilee would be the most ridiculous place to flee. Because Herod Antipas was not only the governor of Perea, where John was ministering, but he was the governor of Galilee as well, where Jesus was going to minister. So Jesus wasn't afraid of confronting sinners and their sin. He wasn't fearful of Herod Antipas. He didn't flee to Galilee to escape. He went right to where the guy was governor. The reason Jesus moved his ministry to Galilee involves the Pharisees. Now previously John had rebuked the Pharisees along with the Sadducees. But the Pharisees up to this point had been very careful not to touch John, the baptizer, because he was popular with the people. Matthew 21, 26, they said, We fear the people for they regard John as a prophet. But learning that Jesus became more popular than John, the Pharisees shifted their hatred and jealousy towards him. And knowing that they were plotting to kill him, Jesus moves to Galilee not out of fear, but to avoid a confrontation because it was not yet his time to die. See, he had an appointed time to die. And the Pharisees and religious leaders were going to be part of that plan. But it wasn't yet time. And when it was his appointed time to die, you know what Jesus did? Boldly confronted the religious establishment right there in the temple with their sin. So Jesus moves to Galilee because of their plotting to murder him. There's also another aspect that I'll allude to now and we'll flesh it out in a minute. But he came into his own. He came to the Jews and the Jewish leaders. The religious establishment was rejecting him. And we're going to see that there's a pattern all the way back to the Old Testament that when God's people reject him, he takes the message to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happens here, as we'll see. So he goes to Galilee. Now the region of Galilee extends west, north, and south of the Sea of Galilee. It's some 50 miles long, 30 miles wide. And Josephus, you know the historian Josephus? He was once the governor of Galilee himself. And he says this, The Galileans are fond of innovation. By nature, they're disposed to change. They love change. And they delight in sedition. So the Galileans would be far more open to Jesus' message than those people entrenched in Pharisaical Judaism. And these people love change. Hey, here's coming somebody with change. We're going to embrace him. So upon arriving in Galilee, now again, we just have a summary statement from Matthew. He goes to Galilee, he's in Nazareth, and next we see him in Capernaum. But again, let's see what the other gospel writers say. Because Luke provides some more background. In Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, Luke says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now that's important. He went in by the leading of the Holy Spirit. He didn't go where he did not need to go. He only went as the Spirit led. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Okay. But when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. Now Jesus was a traveling rabbi. Uh, When he would come to a synagogue, he was given the opportunity as a rabbi to open the scrolls He could read and teach from the law, the prophets, or the writings. He takes one of the scrolls, the scroll of the prophets, and uh, he began to read. But upon hearing his sermon, which denunciated their sinful ways... Luke chapter 4 and verse 28 to 30 says, All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And that's where Matthew now picks up in verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And by the way, if you think Jesus was not was afraid, or excuse me, that he was afraid to confront sin, there's your proof. His very first sermon he preaches there in the synagogue of Nazareth. He confronts their sin and condemns them, so much so they run him out on a rail. Now, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali is the ancient tribal name for the area that we know as Galilee, okay? So if you were to look at an Old Testament map of the 12, 12 tribes, you'd find there Zebulun and Naphtali. Then if you've got a New Testament map of the same area, you would see that same region's Galilee. Nazareth, the city of Nazareth, is located in the tribe of Zebulun, while Capernaum is located in the tribe of Naphtali, okay? Now, Capernaum means the village of Nahum. And while it's not been 100% confirmed, the leading consensus is it was named after the biblical prophet Nahum. Capernaum uh, is located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and its primary industry is fishing. There are several popular fishermen. Perhaps you've heard of them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They all came from the city of Capernaum. And because fishing was its primary industry, uh, it was a very economically prosperous city. Not only that, but there was a trade route, an ancient trade route known as the Way of the Sea. That was the name of the road, the Way of the Sea. This road started in Damascus, Syria, came down towards the Sea of Galilee, passed through Capernaum, made its way over to the Mediterranean Sea, and then finally down to. Egypt. The trade was so great along this road. The economic importance of Capernaum was so great that the Romans established a military installation there to protect the city. And also a customs office. You might know one of the custom officers. A guy by the name of Matthew Levi. These disciples who became the apostles, came from the city of Capernaum. And it was Capernaum that in Matthew 9-1, Jesus now refers to as his own city. Now the reaction of Jerusalem and the religious leaders to Jesus' change of ministry site ranges from doubt to outright disgust. In John 7, 41 and 43, some of the people said, this is the Christ, but others were saying, "Wait, wait a minute. The Christ is not the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee, is he? They look down at Galileans. So a division occurred in the crowd because of Jesus. When Nicodemus reasoned with the other Pharisees that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, they mockingly replied in John 752 and said, "You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And of course, again, the humorous side of that is the chief city of Galilee is Capernaum, which is named for the prophet Nahum. Spiritually blind people are sometimes ironic. Now, about verses 14 to 16 of Matthew 4 presents now the society. we looked at the site. Let's look at the society to whom Jesus preached. The society to whom he preached. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, there's the name of the road, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Matthew tells us that Jesus went to Galilee to fulfill what was spoken. Now contextually, To fulfill, plural, means to satisfy or meet a requirement of something previously written. Eleven times in the Gospel of Matthew, the author uses this verb to prove that Jesus is the Messiah foretold, prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the point is this. If you're going to accurately know Jesus, you must know the Hebrew Scriptures. You must know Genesis through Malachi if you really want to get to know Jesus. Now in verse 13, Matthew noted that Galilee was formerly the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Back in Joshua chapter 19, verse 10 to 16, and 32 and 39, God allotted, he cast lots, and specified which Canaanite territory went to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. But then Matthew quotes... Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Which is part of a much larger messianic prophecy. Now back in Isaiah chapter 8, where the prophecy begins, the prophet reveals the coming judgment of Israel, which includes the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now this is the ten northern tribes, okay? The kingdom of Ephraim, if you will. Isaiah eight twenty two says, Then they will look, okay, Then the ten northern tribes will look to the earth, they will look to the nations, to the Gentiles, and behold distress, and what? Darkness! The gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Now that prophecy was fulfilled when the Assyrians came and destroyed the cities and the country of Israel and took them into captivity in 722 B.C. At that time... Israel, including Naphtali and Zebulun, fell into darkness the darkness of Gentile oppression and domination. But the prophecy continues in chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2. Isaiah 9 says in verse 1 But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. So, yes, you're going to go into gloom, you're going to go into anguish, but it's going to pass. In earlier times, Yahweh treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. He foretells the, road, the name of the road on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. I love the first word of Isaiah 9.1. But... It's the Hebrew particle k, which means but. There's another action. But wait, there's more. Whereas there had been judgment, there would come blessing. Out of the darkness, light would dawn. Now, if there's any question as the source as to who the source of hope and light, who it might be, you got to keep reading Isaiah, because when you get to verse six and seven of Isaiah nine, you'll, you'll know you'll 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 know this. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So who is the source of hope? Who is the light that will dispel and drive out the darkness? It's Jesus Christ, the light of the world. All prophesied there from chapter 8, verse 22, through chapter 9, and verse 7. Now, quoting Isaiah 9, 1, Matthew explains that Jesus' preaching ministry would be based in Galilee. He writes, he's in Galilee to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, and I'll read the prophecy again, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now again, by the way of the sea is that trade route that extends from Damascus, Syria, down to Capernaum, along the Sea of Galilee, then across to the Mediterranean, and down to Egypt. Beyond the Jordan, that's a little more difficult. Because beyond the Jordan in Scripture it can refer to either the land on the east or on the western side of the river. Context determines that. So if you go to the east of the Jordan River, you're back in the region of Perea. Uh, if you're in the West, you're in Galilee. Well, obviously Isaiah is using the phrase for what? Galilee: the land west of the Jordan River. Now, Galilee was Jewish. Galilee was composed of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. How did it beget the name Galilee of the Gentiles? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to go to the Hebrew Scriptures. We have to go back to 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 11, which says Hiram, king of Tyre, supplied Solomon, king of Israel, with Seder and cypress timber with gold according to all his desire then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee see in order to pay the debt he owed to King Hiram a Gentile king for helping to build the temple Solomon gave him 20 cities from Zebulun and Naphtali and so from that day forward part of Galilee was referred to as Galilee of the Jews And part of Galilee was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. Now remember, God allotted that land to Zebulun and Naphtali. It was not Solomon's to give away. His decision to give away pieces of the promised land to Gentiles was just the tip of the iceberg which resulted in the divided kingdom and ultimately uh, ended with the entire promised land being occupied by Gentiles. In 722 BC. Now we're jumping forward from 930, 920 BC to 720 BC. About 200 years pass. Israel is now defeated by the Assyrians. 2 Kings 15, verse 29 says In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came, captured Ejon. And Abel Beth Maachah, and Genoa, and Kedesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser then repopulated the land of Galilee with Gentiles. Galilee was temporarily liberated by Judas Maccabeus in 164 B.C., later by uh, Aristobulus in 104 B.C. But outside of those two moments, Galilee remained under Gentile domination and occupation, even to the days of Christ. So Jesus' ministry took place in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. He even went beyond Galilee. And he ministered to people in Tyre and Sidon and Caesarea Philippi. You can cross-reference that with Matthew 15, 21 to 28, and Matthew 16, uh, 30, or, excuse me, 13 to 20. But understand, ladies and gentlemen, that every time Jesus ministered to the Gentiles, beginning in that second year of his ministry, that it was a fulfillment of an 800-year-old prophecy. Hundred years before they foretell of the place, of the, of the road it's on and so on and so forth and now 800 years later Jesus fulfills that but it's also a fulfillment folks of a promise given to Abraham to bless the whole world God would bless the whole world through Abraham Matthew continues in verse 16 quoting Isaiah 9-2 The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. We have two parallel statements here. Those who were sitting in darkness and those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death refer to two groups of people. It refers to the Jewish people living in Galilee under Gentile domination, but it also refers to the Gentiles themselves. It was a land of darkness because for centuries Galilee was mired in paganism. That great light, the light dawned is none other than Jesus Christ himself and his message of salvation. In John 8 and verse 12, Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world.
1: You see, Israel's
0: purpose was to be a blessing to the Gentile nations. Yahweh said to Abraham in Genesis twelve three In you, in your descendants, all the families of the earth, all the Gentiles will be blessed. Sadly, Israel failed to be a blessing to the nations. Though Israel was viewed by Yahweh as a son, they disobeyed, they acted as an unfaithful son. But in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus overcame temptation, obeyed God, and proved himself to be the faithful son. The faithful son who is of Jewish descent is the blessing to all the families of the earth. He is the blessing to the Gentiles. He's a blessing to Jews. He's a blessing to non-Jews. And what is that blessing? It is the blessing of salvation. That Jesus the light came in the world to redeem people from the darkness of sin and to bring them into the glorious light. Every one of us once lived in darkness. We once lived under the shadow of death. But when the light of Jesus shined upon us, and we came by the grace of God to repentance and faith, that light shone on us, that light enveloped us, it dispelled the darkness, and it blessed us with redemption from hell and the lake of fire. This is an important text for Gentiles because it was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles as well. And Jesus came and did that. Here in Matthew chapter 4 beginning in verse 12 he begins his Gentile ministry and we set the groundwork for that great commission of going out into all the world and preaching the gospel. Teaching them all things that they have learned and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to verse 17. Matthew 4.17 presents the sermon Jesus preached. We've seen the site. We've seen the society. Let's look at the sermon he preached. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time refers to the beginning of his Galilean ministry. Now this is interesting. Because while Jesus taught during that first year, he wasn't engaged in a preaching ministry. His preaching ministry does not begin until he gets to Galilee. That's when he starts his preaching ministry. And notice, his ministry was to what? To preach, to caruso, to proclaim a message. And now Matthew doesn't include the whole sermon. Though Matthew gives us five different sermons of Jesus, he doesn't give us the whole sermon here, but he summarizes the heart and and theme of the message. And the heart and theme of every one of Jesus' sermons is simply this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I want to examine the summary, but I also want to take a look at Jesus' sermon in the synagogue to demonstrate three things about his sermons, three things about the messages he preached. His messages were expository, his messages were evangelistic, his messages were eschatological. And that sets forth a pattern for how preaching should be done. So let's look at the expository aspect of his sermons. His sermons were expository. Now, what does that mean? An expository sermon is a sermon that contains a clear statement of a biblical idea legitimately derived from a particular passage or passages. In other words, you're going to take a passage of scripture, you're going to exegete that passage of scripture, you're going to explain that passage of scripture. An expository sermon has to be based upon careful exegesis of the text. You're not just getting up there and winging it, you're not just getting up there and saying whatever. You're researching, you're studying it so that you can explain the the text passage by passage, word for word, verse by verse. And and again, an expository sermon has to follow the structure of the text. So when we preach expository sermons, we begin with a passage, we work our way from the beginning of the passage to the end of the passage. Okay. Every one of Jesus' sermons are expository. And we need only be look here for the moment at the sermon preached in the Galilean synagogue. Well, let's take a moment and let's go over to Luke chapter 4. Because we're going to be here for a moment. So let's go to Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 20. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 20. Now, we alluded to this earlier. We're going to go back there. And you'll recall, this is when he comes to Nazareth. He had left Judea, left Jerusalem, comes into Galilee, going synagogue to synagogue, but then he gets to Nazareth. he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath in verse 16. And he stood up to read. And the book, by the way the word book there is the Hebrew word for scroll, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book, he opened the scroll and found where it was written the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and he closed the scroll he gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed upon him. Again, let's notice a couple things here. He read from the scroll of Isaiah. Again, there was somebody who read from the law, somebody who read from the prophets, somebody who read from the writings. And after the reading was done, then the instruction would come. Okay? So you would have three sermons. One right after the next. Okay? Jesus turned the scroll or rolled the scroll to what we know as Isaiah 61, 1-2. to And he read it. And then he sat down. Now why did he sit? Because anytime time you read the scripture, you stood. But when you explain the scripture, you sat. Now I don't know if that means because it's going to be a long time or what. But he sat. Or Rabbi sat. So, he begins to exposit its true meaning And then applies it to the people. Now go back down to verse 21 of Luke 4. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the start of the sermon. Okay. He's read it. Now he starts out. Opening line. What I just read is now fulfilled. And he goes on to explain how his baptism and the Holy Spirit anointed him. And how he is the fulfillment. Because again, what's the passage start out with? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. So that's where he starts. And he starts explaining who he is and what he's done and why he has come. He explains his messianic ministry to deliver the gospel, to redeem those held captive by sin's dominion. And then he makes the application. Following the explanation, he says in verse 23 of Luke 4, let's read from 23 to 27, No doubt... You will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But when I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were a great many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now remember, Jesus knew he was rejected by his people. John 1.11 affirms he came to his own, and his own received him not. And so because of their rejection, because of Jewish rejection, Jesus was extending his messianic ministry to include the Gentiles. And as proof, in his application, Jesus cites two examples. He comes right out and says, listen, I've told you I'm the Messiah. I've revealed it. I've shown it from Scripture. I've explained the Scripture. You're still rejecting me. So because you're rejecting me, here's how it's going to be. It's going to be just like Elijah and Elisha. You see, Elijah was sent to a Gentile widow from the the village of Sidon. Now, there were plenty of Jewish widows to minister, or who could have ministered to the prophet, but because the Jews had rejected God's message and messenger, made it impossible. In the second example, Elisha was sent to a Gentile named Naaman, the captain of the Syrian army, who suffered from leprosy, of which Elisha healed him. Again, there were plenty of lepers in, 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 Jewish lepers, but because Israel rejected God's message and messenger, Elisha was sent to the Gentiles. Now when they hear this they are incensed because there is nothing more lowly in the Jewish mind than a woman than a Gentile and then a leper. God sent his Messiah to women to Gentiles and to lepers. He elevated all three above the unbelieving Jews. Just as with Elisha and Elijah, God's messengers had come, but were rejected. And so God directed his messenger, now the Messiah, to take the message of redemption to the Gentiles. But his sermon, all of his sermons, are expositional. Notice as well his sermon was evangelistic. Again, the heartbeat of every sermon th- throbs on one word, repent. Repent. The call to repent is soteriological. It's a call of salvation. That word repent, matanoeo, is rooted in two Hebrew terms, nakham and sum. Nakham means to change your mind. Shub, rather not sum. Shub means to turn or convert. What is conversion? It's a radical change of mind and heart it leads to a complete change of life. In the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, it states that commanding people to repent is a command to change their life as a result of a change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. In other words, a message telling people to repent is telling them to confess and forsake their sin and turn to God. Jesus' message is plain: repent of your sin and turn to God. And that's that's exactly what was preached through the whole Hebrew all the all the uh, Hebrew prophets. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Jeremiah 18, 11, turn back each of you from your evil ways. Reform your ways and your deeds. Lamentation 3, 40, let us examine and probe our ways. Let us return to the Lord. Ezekiel 14, 6, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your face away from all your abominations. Now, the evangelistic nature of his sermons is confirmed in Mark chapter 1. This isn't a fluke here, for folks. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus, it says, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we've dealt with repent, but what does it mean to believe? Believe or faith in the gospel is trusting in a person and what that person has done. And who is that person? None other than God's Son, Jesus Christ. So a person must not only repent of their sin, but they must place their faith, their trust in the Son of God, the Savior and Sovereign. And what has he done? What has the Savior and Lord done? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, He died for our sins, was buried, and raised on the third day. How do you know if repentance and faith are genuine? Because there's a confession of Jesus as Lord and a submission to his lordship. That's the fruit of repentance, man. Somebody genuinely saved, there's going to be Jesus becomes their Lord and there's going to be a submission to that lordship. If there's no submission to that lordship, I'll tell you right now, they're Christian in name only. So examine yourselves. Make sure you're, you're where you need to be. So the sermons were expository, they were were evangelistic. Uh, Third, his sermons were eschatological. His sermons were eschatological. Why was he commanding the people to repent of their sin and believe the gospel? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is an announcement. This is eschatological announcements of what the prophets have foretold. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is coming. This is, now again, what is the kingdom of God? Well, on one hand, it's his eternal rule. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, Daniel says. It's a universal kingdom. David declares, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. It's a physical kingdom. Daniel 2.44 says that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. The kingdoms will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all other kingdoms. And the kingdom is also spiritual. Jesus says in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now when he says that his kingdom is at hand, it means it's approaching. What's approaching? The spiritual and the physical aspects of that kingdom. To enter God's spiritual kingdom, there is only one way. You must repent and believe in the gospel. And only those who repent and believe the gospel will become part not only of the spiritual kingdom, but later the physical kingdom. Now yes, Jesus was coming to offer the physical kingdom, but the Jewish rejection meant that got put on hold. But there is coming a future day at the end of the tribulation when he will establish, he will return, he will establish his kingdom. And at that time, there is going to be judgment. And if you are not in the spiritual kingdom, If you've never repented of your sin and believed in the gospel, you are going to be judged and cast into hell to await for a thousand years for the great white throne judgment, at which point you will be cast in the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. That's eschatological. Friends, if Jesus was here today, he'd be preaching the same way. His sermons would still be expositional. They'd still be evangelistic. They'd still be eschatological. You know, his messages weren't preached to please people. He didn't preach for thunderous applause. He preached to reveal God's will and cause people to repent of their sins and cause those people who repent to draw near to God. And those who preach today ought to follow that example. Okay? If we're not following that example, we're not preaching. Okay? Now, every one of us, every one of you, must ask yourself, how do you respond to the preaching of God's word? We saw how the the Jews responded. Not too well. Let me ask you, have you prepared your heart to hear from God? Have you prepared your heart to be changed, to be converted from your old ways, to embrace a new way? Or are you just like those religious leaders? You're just like those Jewish people of old. You're letting it go in there one out and out the other and you're rejecting the messenger and you're rejecting the message. My friends, God only tolerates so long. Thank God he's long-suffering, but long-suffering has an end date. Because at some point he's going to move his messenger and he's going to move his message to a new locale where it will be received. Folks, Jesus preached God's word and he lived according to it. He lived to fulfill the scripture. Now again, we're not prophet, none of us are prophesied in the scripture. But we, while our lives may not be prophesied like Jesus, our lives should still be like Jesus based on the scriptures. What do you mean by that? Well, let me ask you something. let me ask you this. What type of an employee are you? What type of an employer are you? What type of wife are you? What type of husband are you? Well, if you're not sure, you'll only find the answer in God's word. That's where you'll find out what kind of an employee, an employer, and a wife, and a husband you ought to be. So you find the answer in God's word and live accordingly. Yeah, now let me ask you, how do you view the lost? How do you view your enemies? Well, you only can find the right answer in God's word, and when you do, live accordingly. Where do you stand, believer, on issues like abortion and homosexuality? You're only going to find the true answers in God's word, and when you do, live accordingly. If you claim to be a Christian, every part of your life, must be lived according to God's word. And so I challenge you, check yourself, examine your life. Run it through the spectrum of God's word. And when God's word is a mirror, shows you where your life doesn't line up with his word, make correction, repent, and get it right. Father God in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And Father, Lord, we lift you up and praise you because you did not forget Gentiles. Because you kept a promise some thousands of years made before to bless the nations. And you've done that through your son. You sent him to the Jews and to the Gentiles. You sent him with the same message. Whether Jews trapped in darkness, whether Gentiles who are in darkness, you sent him to both to cast the light upon them, to dispel the darkness, and to rescue them from the dark domain of Satan. And so, Father, I thank and praise you that you've shown us in your word, you've confirmed in your word that that is who Jesus is and that is what he has done. And we are to do the same. Father, I I must confess that, Lord, we don't live like we ought to. Our lives don't always line up with Jesus. Jesus. And so, Father, I ask and pray that you'd forgive us. Lord, may we confess those sins. May we forsake those evil ways. And, Father, as we find ourselves against your word, we find areas where we're not lined up. Lord, I pray that your spirit would prick our hearts, grieve us, Father, until we confess that and turn from it. Help us to live lives that imitate your son as laid out in your word. Father, help us to be faithful to the preaching ministry. Help us to faithfully exposit your word. Help us to reach people with the evangelistic message of your word as well as the eschatological. That, Father, there is a need for salvation and the need of salvation may not necessarily be seen today, but it's coming in the days ahead when there comes a day of judgment and when people will either be in heaven or in hell. Father, there's no greater eschatological message to be proclaimed. And so, Father, find us faithful. And may we go forth rejoicing in you today, forever, forever, and as we await that great and glorious day when Jesus comes to receive a son to himself, we pray in his holy name. Amen.